I mean, I used to have this battle with Andrew Bynum all the time as to get him into the weight room was a hassle because he thought that a workout, in order for him to do anything of value, he had to be dragging himself out like he wanted to puke and he could barely walk and otherwise there's no point in doing it. That's not the case. Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Basketball Strong Podcast. I'm Tim DeFrancesco, former LA Lakers strength and conditioning coach and doctor of physical therapy, and I'm here with my co-host, Emmy-nominated writer and author, Phil White. This podcast is not just for basketball junkies. It's for anyone who loves to hear the human stories behind great people while learning the science behind preparing your body for the court and high performance. In today's episode, Phil and I get into the science, the why, and the how these seemingly young and elite NBA players could be coming up with all of these injuries during the playoffs. And it's not as cut and dry as, well, they're pro athletes and they have all the resources and they're young. This should never happen. Let's get into the conversation. One thing that uh, you hear a lot in the mainstream media, TD, and then probably if you dare to go into comment boards and forums and social comments and that whole uh, thing that can quickly become just a cesspool or just nonsense. But you hear a lot like how, how are these young guys um, sustaining these injuries when it matters the most, you know, and, and some of them we know, you know, LeBron's well documented for how much he, he spends and how many subject matter experts he has around him, whether it's nutrition or, hydration or mobility and all of the above strength and conditioning and you know not everyone has LeBron's resources or commitment to extend their career to that same degree but they do have you know people playing the role that you play for the Lakers S&C coach you know they have ATs PTs uh, others around them Uh, and so how are these young healthy specimens getting hurt and particularly during the playoffs so would you like to address that a little bit? Yeah, it seems like a head scratcher, but it's it's really easily it's it's easy to explain and understand and there's logic to why there's a reason for this and it's not just that somebody's that it's it's it, it's not as as simple as people want to make it and it's also I I cringe when I hear people get into the idea of, well, you never used to see these types of injuries and you never, this is, this is every, I feel like every playoffs you hear like, Oh, this is the most injuries we've ever had before. And and then next year we hear the same thing. And so we forget, I mean, revisionist history, right. And, and it's, it's easy. It's harder to think back than we think it is. And so there's, you know, Jerry West had, major hamstring issues back in the day. There's the issue that Byron Scott and Magic Johnson, basically, as Gary Vitti has told me, ripped the hamstrings right off of their bones in going into the finals one year in, in Pat Riley's heated, heated pre, pre-finals um, uh, training camp after they swept somebody and had time off to wait for the finals. And so, um, so these things happen and they have happened. And do I think that there's more money at stake and that there's more awareness and ability to diagnose and more decisions that are made in conservative ways to, to pull guys from a game when something's acting up or to, to stay out? Yeah, probably. But we also are seeing careers that, extend longer. You, you, people forget Larry Bird only played 13 seasons and they, you talk Larry Bird and Mikhail talk about the fact that Mikhail was 
playing on a broken foot throughout the playoffs and and that that the one year where they they kind of literally limped their way into the finals and if you ever watch Kevin McHale walk now it's not pretty so I think that these are things that need to be considered is the long-term health of these players and athletes as we get better at understanding research at diagnosing and at rehabilitating before running guys out there is these things need to be considered but here's the thing you got to remember that whether you like it or not, there's a difference in intensity in a preseason game, a regular season game, and a playoff game. And guess what? There's levels beyond that. There's levels in the first round of the playoffs, the conference finals, and then a finals game. There, there's just a ratchet that goes up for players and for the intensity of the environment is certainly is easy to tell because every series it gets a little bit more buzz around it and and the intensity is more and more, there's more at stake, but the intensity that the players play at is ratcheted up and it has to be. If you talk about eight preseason games, well, when I was in the NBA, eight preseason games, eight to 10, depending on how you did it. And then you talk about 82 regular seasons and you're now at 90 games before you even get to the playoffs playoff series goes seven games. Now they used to be five games in the first round, seven game series. Now all of a sudden you're at a hundred games before you know it. And you're in only in the second round of the playoffs. So you cannot go out there and, and people would love to assume, or they'd love to think that a player, every possession of every game, preseason, regular season playoffs, or even practice that they're going a hundred percent effort and you cannot sustain that. So you, as a pro, the the great pros find ways to know when to push the gas and when they can, without sacrificing or limiting their team, not mailing it in, but they find places within the game to allow them to play 40 minutes a night, if that's what's being asked of them. And if that's what's being asked of them, then they find ways where they can pull off the gas pedal a little bit and they know when they're going to need to put it on. So what we're, the reason why I think that's important to note is you do have this circumstance in the NBA, and this, this is something that I observed and worked with and, and tried to find ways to find better solutions for, is as the NBA All-Star break is after the halfway point. So it's a, those are the real dog days of the NBA are the two weeks before and the two weeks after the all-star break, (laughs) because you're getting to the all-star break is a long time. And you're just, you're just kind of scratching your clawing your way there, even on a, a winning season. And you're just looking for this moment where we can let some air out of the balloon and not be on a road trip finally. And, and do this thing where we kind of recalibrate ourselves and reset and reboot. So then the two weeks after, it's still a little while before the playoffs start. So you're either probably in one of two situations. There's some middle ground here too, where your team is safely locked in for the playoffs and there's not a lot to play for other than just, you know, keep jockeying in with your playoff seating that you're at. Or there's the team that's sort of like, okay, we're, we're barely in that 10 spot where where we're drifting even further out beyond that. So, okay. So then they have those two weeks where it's, you can't even see quite the end of the season type of thing. But what happens in those dog days is players start to find ways to reboot, recalibrate and refresh and rejuvenate themselves. One of those things is 
they start looking to negotiate or trade, trade out some rest for trade out some workout time that might be typically getting guys in the weight room three times in a given seven day period is, is pretty standard in the, in the NBA, if not three to five for some players, but you start trading out those things that are feeling like they're taxing them. So a player is saying, well, I'm going to go down to twice per week for the next couple of weeks in the weight room and get an extra rest day type of thing and, and give myself some extra recovery and spend some more time on the table and get some more stretching and that kind of thing. And, and look, there's times when that's exactly what a player needs because they're getting a huge minute load and it, and it is what the doctor orders, but they're not, not to the point where you can do that completely. So you do have this sort of dialed down of what I consider what you do to top off the structures that are load bearing. And that's the strength training and the loading that happens in the weight room and, and between the athletic training room and the weight room. And you start doing more passive stuff because it feels good. It feels refreshing. And then all of a sudden you get to the playoffs, boom, ratchet goes up, intensity goes up. So what do we know? We know that when you increase intensity, you increase volume because that's the other thing. A team could be asking Brandon Ingram to play 28 minutes or 37 minutes in, in Brandon's case, maybe even more than that, but uh, in the regular season per game, and then all of a sudden they need them for 40 a game in the, in the playoffs because there's just more at stake. The games are closer. It's a tough series, that kind of thing. So your, your volume of work goes up. Your intensity went up because the playoffs are here now. You've ratcheted yourself up. You've sort of paced yourself just for this moment, and you've taken a, a top off of the structures that are supporting you out of the equation, or you've dialed it down. So you have a really dangerous recipe if that's going on. And that is exactly how you explain why these could be happening to a young, fit, professional athlete. They're still human beings and their anatomy responds to the same stuff as any one of us who doesn't play on a professional sport roster. So to me, it's really easy how, and, and, sometimes even incredible that you don't see more of it. And it's a credit to the, the, the players for doing the right things and supporting themselves and, and doing the top off work. It's a, play, a credit to the sports medicine staffs and the teams of, of professionals, the clinicians and the sports medicine professionals that, and strength and conditioning professionals that surround them. And in many ways you could look at it and say, it's amazing that there's not more, but because we have all these, things to support and resources around us. Now we can, we can um, stave off some of these things. Yeah. Great points TD. Cause I think when we read stories from again, mostly mainstream outlets as those are the ones with the biggest distribution and we hear the term load management, a lot of the focus there is, well, if these red flags go up, we need to somehow cut the overall volume, the intensity, and basically the load and that's what that means, right? But as we've talked about with numerous guests recently who are who are in the same same specialties as you are in, you know, PT and strength and conditioning and in the business of durability, we're not just looking at these deltas or these spikes in acute chronic workload ratio or these Z scores that show, you know, if a player is deviating away from their own personal baseline by more than a certain amount, okay, we either need to increase their recovery, enhance their recovery, or cut their load and intensity, but it can go the other way too, right? So we don't want to see, what are you looking at? Maybe like beyond the, say, 10% deficit in load exposure, because otherwise it sounds like that that's going to mean you're not physically ready and prepared for for the games, particularly when we're talking about playoff intensity. 
Yeah. Interestingly, I think some of the elite level athletes that are so fit and so topped off all the time and, and so prepared for this, the, the person that has to really rely more closely on like a 10% increase in volume or intensity. And that being an issue is the person that is not really chronically been preparing for this. And that's the person where a more than 10% becomes really an issue. What I would say in the pro athlete realm of things, don't forget that the best way to shorten or decrease the, uh, the spikes in workloads way beyond a 10% amount is to keep them topped off chronically. And so that, that's the trick that is such an easy, tempting trap to fall into is like, well, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I'm sore. Rest more. Well, yeah. I, I mean, and there's a nuance to what I'm getting into here because of course, if you're in a true overtraining state, then yes, what you need is better recovery strategies implemented more often. But if, if you're not in a overflowing bucket or overtraining state, then adding rest with, and, and substituting rest for in, in for things that top off these structures is a really risky, dangerous thing. Cause you're actually doing the exact thing that creates the gap for this stuff to happen with. And so making sure that you earn your rest and that you're really precise with your rest and recovery strategies. That to me is the key, not just adding more and saying, do less, that doing less is not rest. And, and, and I think that's a really important key to remember is there's be more precise with your recovery strategies, not just adding more of them. Make sure you're not trading recovery strategies for or, or grabbing for recovery strategies instead of and pushing out of the way things that top off your structures and keep them topped off like loading and strengthening. And it doesn't mean that you have to spend an hour and a half in the weight room. I mean, I used to have this battle with Andrew Bynum all the time is to get him into the weight room was a hassle because he thought that a workout in order for him to do anything of value, he had to be dragging himself out. Like he wanted to puke and he could barely walk. And otherwise there's no point in doing it. That's not the case. You could do things that are isometric holds and, and strengthening top off exercises that really don't create a lot of soreness. And you don't even have to be walking out. You could be walking out of the weight room feeling like, wow, I just, I just, activated things. I just turn the switches on. I feel great. I feel the term is potentiated. I feel ready to go. That to me is something that is absolutely necessary in an NBA season to manage and combat the forces and the volumes and the intensities that can fluctuate and get really ratcheted up as you get closer to the playoffs. Well, this has been fascinating, TD. Any closing thoughts? No, let's see how this plays out. Absolutely. And tune in again next week and, and all the weeks to come in the playoffs as we update on some of these injuries that may, may turn out to be a bit more chronic and uh, start to dive into those new ones that are inevitably going to pop up between now and then. And in the meantime, keep it dialed in and keep living basketball strong. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, and we hope you did, Please give us a good review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to podcasts on. And so you never miss a weekly episode, be sure to subscribe and follow. You can find previous episodes on our show website. That's www.basketballstrongpodcast.com. For more basketball performance resources and nagging injury solutions, follow me on Instagram at 
TD Athletes Edge, and follow Phil at Phil White Books. Until next week's episode, stay basketball strong. <laughs>